This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show featuring highlights from this year's Pennsylvania Conference for Women. Ten thousand women gathered at the Pennsylvania Convention Center in Philadelphia late last week for the annual conference that brings inspiration, personal and professional development, and a community of support to women at every stage of the professional pipeline. Even more so than in years past, the conference brought into high relief the big issues that affect all women regardless of political affiliation. The appalling epidemic of sexual assault, where one out of five women and one out of 71 men will be sexually assaulted in their lifetimes. The paucity of adequate maternal health care, especially for women of color. And the importance of having more women in leadership roles, especially in government and the halls of business. We were fortunate enough to be able to capture some of the conference's wisdom to share with you today, including my interview with HBR's Amy Gallo on conflict in the workplace, an interview done with the amazing Serena Williams, and Amal Clooney's keynote address. While you may have become aware of Amal as the woman who married George Clooney, there's a reason why he describes himself as Amal's husband. She's a British lawyer who specializes in international law and human rights, and her clients have included political prisoners, Nadia Murad, the recent winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, and the Republic of Armenia. So let's listen into what she had to share with the 10,000 women who were in the audience. It is a particular honor to be speaking to this group of accomplished women today because I believe that we are living through a defining moment in the struggle for women's rights. And since I'm a lawyer, I want to explain this by telling you about one of my clients, a young Iraqi woman called Nadia. Four years ago, Nadia was living happily as a 21-year-old student in a small village in northern Iraq where her family were farmers. Then one day in August 2014, ISIS fighters surrounded her village. Their plan was to destroy the inhabitants because they were not Muslim and because they did not have a holy book. The male adults in Nadia's family were marched off to their death, and the young boys were taken to camps where they would become child soldiers. Nadia's mother was also killed. Isis had no use for the older women. But Nadia and her sisters and nieces were taken away by bus and sold to Isis fighters who kidnapped and enslaved them. Nadia was bought and sold by one ISIS fighter after another and ultimately raped by 12 different men. Some forced her to dress up in preparation for rape. One made her lick honey off of his toes. One night, she was offered to six guards to do whatever they wanted to her body. She showed me the scars from cigarette burns and beatings, and she told me that throughout her ordeal, ISIS fighters would call her a dirty unbeliever and brag about conquering Yazidi women and wiping their religion from the face of the earth. What happened to Nadia also happened to thousands of other Yazidi women and girls who were taken by ISIS to be sold in physical markets and also online on Facebook and through other social media, sometimes for as little as $20. During witness interviews, I spoke to a mother whose two daughters had committed suicide while they were in ISIS captivity. I met a young girl called Yasmin, who at 16 escaped from her captors, but then set herself on fire because she told me she wanted to make sure she was too ugly to ever be taken by ISIS again. I spoke to Nadia's niece, Rajan, who recounted that while she was raped, she could hear a 10-year-old girl 
screaming for her mother next door. These assaults on women are far from isolated. In another case, in Myanmar, I represent two Reuters journalists who have exposed crimes being committed by Myanmar's army against people from another religious minority called the Rohingya. According to the UN, these crimes have included the rape of hundreds, if not thousands, of Rohingya women and girls over the last year. Some of the rapes, the UN says, involve girls as young as seven. Investigators say they often took place in public, where sometimes mothers would be raped in front of their children, and some had injuries so severe that they died soon afterwards. Rape as a weapon of war is not new, but accountability for it is a more modern phenomenon. Rape is a way to systematically destroy a community. It is a way to try and control women for the rest of their lives by taking their bodies, stifling their ability to procreate, and condemning them to being ostracized from their own society. Rape is an attempt to destroy a woman's spirit and her will to survive. Accountability only happened because women made it a priority. The landmark case happened in the late 1990s at the UN Tribunal for Rwanda. The defendant was a mayor named Jean-Paul Akayesu. He was accused of genocide, but the indictment said nothing about sexual violence. And at one point during the trial, a witness who'd been called to testify about other crimes mentioned incidents of rape. It's only following pressure from women's groups and the one female judge on the bench that rape was then added to the indictment. Three brave Rwandan women testified under oath in public. And as a result of their bravery, the court convicted Akayesu of genocide by rape. He is currently in prison, serving a life sentence for his crimes. Other convictions have followed since that milestone case. But so far, more than four years after Nadia's family was killed and enslaved, there has, been, there has not been a single trial of an ISIS fighter in a court anywhere in the world for sexual violence. This is what Nadia and I are fighting to change. Nadia was the first Yazidi girl to speak publicly about what happened to her and to her community. And she has done this almost every day for the last four years. Together, Nadia and I have toured refugee camps and women's shelters. We've stood before governments and the United Nations with one message. Survivors deserve justice. I'm glad to say that after a long advocacy campaign, Nadia and I sat in the chamber of the UN Security Council, the most powerful international body in the world, and watched 15 hands finally go up to adopt a resolution to set up an investigation. UN investigators are now on the ground in Iraq, and the possibility of justice is finally within reach. But for too long, women have suffered without speaking out or without being believed. And this is true in this country as well. In the United States, in the United States, a woman is physically assaulted every nine seconds. And there are up to 60,000 victims of trafficking every year including women forced to work as prostitutes or held in other types of servitude. They are not another society's problem. They are in our own backyard, among us, at airports, massage parlors, nail bars. The Me Too movement has taught us how pervasive abuse has been in so many other workplaces around the country as well. 
For too long, predators have felt safe and women unsafe. Me Too is turning this on its head, but there is still a long way to go. Looking ahead, I hope two things will happen. First, accountability. Perpetrators must know that the abuse of women will no longer be tolerated and that from now on, abusers will be brought to justice in a court of law and face imprisonment if convicted. This should be true no matter where the crime was committed. Survivors in any country deserve the chance to look their abusers in the eye and for history to record what has happened to them. They deserve to be heard and they deserve to be respected. That means that the president of a country should not publicly ridicule a woman who courageously comes forward to allege abuse. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> the president of a country should not ridicule a woman who comes forward to allege abuse by a man being considered for a seat on the country's highest court. And it means the leader of the Senate should not assure constituents that he would, quote, plow right through her testimony. Me Too should mean not only that women can come forward and talk, but also that those in power are listening. My second hope is that the positive movement that started with Me Too goes far and wide. Far in that it encourages not only safer, but more equal workplaces, with women gaining better representation from boardrooms to the halls of government. And I hope that it will be wide, enough to include all those who are advocates for women's rights. That includes many men in this country, as well as women, Republicans, as well as Democrats. No country can reach its economic, political, or social potential until women have equal rights. So it is in everyone's interest that they achieve this. We are living through a moment of reckoning and a rebalancing of power. But there's a long way from me to to never again. And there is still much work for us all to do. Still, I am optimistic. Last Friday, I was woken up at four o'clock in the morning when the home phone rang. It never rings, and at that time, it must surely be bad news, I thought. So my husband picked up the receiver. We looked at each other with concern because we saw that the number was his parents' phone number. And then suddenly I heard his mum cry out, George, did you hear? Nadia won the Nobel Peace Prize. The announcement had come in from Norway and George's parents had seen it on the morning news on the East Coast. I think we all cried at some point that day, just thinking about how far this young woman had come and how much good she was going to go on to do. She is the girl who refused to be silenced and who was determined to use her voice to help others. In doing that, she's an example to us all, 
and an inspiring reminder of just how far we can go. Thank you. And with that, the bar was set high for the day. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and this week we're bringing you highlights from the Pennsylvania Conference for Women. It wasn't all speeches. There were workshops on everything from re-entering the workforce after having a baby to launching your own business and building your negotiation skills, taught by many of our former Women at Work guests. I had a chance to speak with Amy Gallo, contributing editor to the Harvard Business Review and author of the Harvard Business Review Guide to Dealing with Conflict. I brought her a question that I was asked recently by one of our students. She's about to launch into her fabulous career as a Wharton alumna, and she said, what does she need to do to stay safe in the workplace? Because given what's happened in our post-Kavanaugh context, she's worried that all the progress we made with hashtag MeToo is being undone. Do you think that's true? And what advice should we give to these young women? I so hope that's not true. Um, I, of course, had had the same concerns over the past few weeks as I've watched what's going on. And one of the interesting things is when I talk to people about how have workplace cha- workplaces changed since Me Too, unfortunately, I hear not a lot. And I think that we have to remember that progress is slow. And we are certainly having this conversation, which is a huge advantage, a huge sense of progress. But we have to keep having having the conversation. To your student, I would say, unfortunately, she does have to think about it, and she has to make choices and take precautions to to stay safe. We are far away from a, a a world in which women feel completely safe at the workplace. One of your areas of expertise is how we can resolve conflict, how we can communicate with each other, um, especially for young women who are entering the workplace and want to ask questions about this, help make the workplace safe for other people. Are there things that they should keep in mind about how they communicate that will get maximize their chance of being heard? For sure. So one thing most definitely that people need to think about is being a bystander. Right? We need to make sure that we, when we see things happening at work, when women are discriminated against, when their ideas are stolen or they're spoken over in meetings, or even if they're taken in an office alone with a man and you're concerned about that, it's important to speak up. And I think it's hard for us to do that because we're taught that disagreeing, especially as a woman, is unkind or untoward, and it's actually not. It's often the courageous, best thing to do. So when we muster the courage to do that, or we're compelled because we see that it's really important, are there aspects of how we communicate, how we approach somebody, how we use language, how we handle our own body language that can help us be heard and respected so we don't create another barrier when we're trying to break one down? One of the biggest mistakes I see women make when communicating is they will often apologize or they'll start their sentences with I think or I wish or it might be that. And oftentimes in a tense situation, that kind of language can help diffuse things. So you want to make that choice as a strategic decision. But but, But if you're trying to make yourself heard... Be assertive. Just say exactly what you mean. Don't apologize for for your perspective. You don't have to be aggressive, but you can be confident and calm. And that often gives you the most authority and makes it most likely that you'll be heard. But you do bring up an interesting point, which is, and you were talking about different places where our voices are not heard. So is there mansplaining? Are we being cornered out of the conversation in a meeting? And those are particularly important times then to find our voice and use it with strength and clarity. Um, But however, that soft speak may actually be strategic at times if we're worried about somebody having their defenses up. Is that a fair way of explaining it? Absolutely. I think when you're dealing with someone who becomes particularly defensive, who you know is is ego-sensitive and that they don't want to hear your opinion, or they're someone who flies off the handle when they're confronted, it can be incredibly helpful to soften your language, but it should be a strategic choice, not a a default. Um, One of the other places where we hear about conflict in the workplace is also between women. What are things that we should be aware of to help diffuse that or actually prevent that? I think a we're all in this together attitude is a positive thing for all of us. So when I hear people complain about it's not the men in my office, it's the women, right? 
think about what can I do to promote other women? And you may wish that other women would do that for you, but it takes someone to, to take the first step. So think about when someone says something in a meeting and then gets talked over, how can you say, well, I wish I could hear what Amy had to say, or I'd love for her to be able to finish her point. Really focus on raising up other women. So it sounds like kind of core values behind that is some compassion and some empathy. Are those things that can help us communicate more effectively or at least listen more effectively? Yes, and I think compassion, empathy are key skills for everyone, women especially, but anyone in the workplace, the more compassion you can have for other people, empathy, think about things from their perspective. This is true whether you're managing up to your boss who might be under pressures you don't understand or dealing with a conflict with someone who you think is being completely unreasonable. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Think about why they might be acting the way they're acting and then make a choice about how how to react. When I think about moments where I wish I had reacted better, when I think I'd been, wish I'd been more in more control of how I communicated, sometimes it was because I was afraid or I was anxious and my heart was racing. I could hear, you know, my pulse in my brain. Um, what advice do you have for us to get control of ourselves and be present in the moment when we're in charge situations, but we need to reduce the potential for conflict? So the experience you have, you're talking about is the stress response. It's a natural stress response. And our body is not good at deciphering when we're being chased by a bear and when we're not getting the resources we want for our project, right? <laughs> we, we feel like everything that when people disagree with us, that it's a threat. And so what you need to do is calm that stress reaction basic mindfulness techniques, deep breathing. Um, There's a technique called anchoring where you focus on your feet touching the ground or your hand on the table. Anything you can do to get yourself out of that stress response, out of your rumination can be really helpful. You can also do some self-talk. This is not about me. This is about the business. Or people, I know I have clients who have mantras that they go back to, which is stay calm, cool, and collected. Or the person who is most calm gets, has that upper hand, right? Whatever you need to do to get yourself back into a place where you can feel like you can act in a way that you're proud of is, is ideal. And is there any difference in how we should approach this when we're talking to our staff versus our superiors? Oh, yeah. So, of course, anytime you're talking with someone who has power over you versus someone who you have power over, it's going to be slightly different. Of course, empathy and compassion play a role in all of those conversations. But you have to be aware of the power dynamics. And you have to be aware of how people are either perceiving your authority or how you're perceiving someone else's authority. We get really messed up when we think about someone having power of us or us having power over them. But try to remember this is about human interaction. Be aware of the dynamics, but don't let it cloud your judgment. So one of the things that I'm concerned can get clouded sometimes is that um, people can perceive that they're in argument when they're really just talking about ideas. How can we sort through when it's a kind of heated debate, a healthy discussion, and when it crossed the line into being conflict that we should be diffusing? So you do want to distinguish between what is unhealthy and what is a normal, inevitable part of interacting with other human beings. And you have to remember people have different tolerances. I tend to be a conflict seeker, so I'm not afraid to raise my voice, right? And I'm not afraid to have that healthy debate. My husband, on the other hand, is a conflict avoider, and it makes him really uncomfortable. So it's a matter of really paying attention to the dynamics in the room, but also paying attention to the content. Are you disagreeing over the goal of the project or are you disagreeing over someone's personality? And anytime it moves into the realm of personality or relationship, you want to bring it back to the work issue that's actually at hand. This is amazing and I really appreciate you making time on this busy day here. We're running out of time but I have a feeling my listeners like me would like to learn more about the work that you're doing. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about these things? Sure. So hbr.org is where I've published most of my articles, um, Harvard Business Review. You can also buy my book, The HBR Guide to Dealing with Conflict. I talk a lot about how to handle conflicts like we've been discussing. Thanks so much for having me. That was Amy Gallo, contributing editor to the Harvard Business Review. Comedy was also part of the event in the form of Maysoon Zaid, a New Jersey-born Muslim woman with cerebral palsy, who's about to close a deal on a television sitcom about 
you guessed it, an American Muslim family, starring Maysoon. Here's just a snippet of her set. I grew up in a time where the word Muslim wasn't used as a slur by politicians desperate for poll points. I grew up in a time where my friends would never bully me. I was the only Muslim in a completely Italian Catholic town, and my friends would take me to midnight mass on Christmas Eve, and they would show me off, and they would say, she is from where Jesus is from. And I'd say, I'm from Jersey! (laughs) Growing up, my parents taught me to dream big, and like most Muslim girls growing up in America, my dream was to be on the daytime soap opera general hospital. And I pursued that dream by going to Arizona State University. Why Arizona State? Because they gave me a mega scholarship because I went to college during affirmative action. The admissions officer called me and she said, we had always looked for a black lesbian in a wheelchair and then we found you. And I was like, wow, you're going to give me so much money. So... I got A's in all my acting classes. I was like the pet lemur of the theater department, but I wasn't getting cast in any of the shows. And I couldn't figure out why. If I'm getting A's in all my classes, why can't I be diner number three in a student play? Well, my senior year, it all changed. Arizona State decided to do a show called They Dance Real Slow in Jackson. It's about a girl with cerebral palsy. I'm a girl with cerebral palsy. So I was like, free at last, free at last. I'm finally going to get a show. I'm free at last. I didn't get the part. (laughs) Sherry Brown got the part. I don't even change her name. And so I went running, I went limping really quickly to the head of the theater department, and I was like, can you explain to me how I didn't get a part that I was literally born to play, and I am using the word literally correctly in this sentence? And she said, you can't do the stunts. And I said, if I can't do the stunts, neither can the character. (laughs) College was imitating Hollywood. Hollywood has a sordid history of having non-disabled actors play visibly disabled on screen. And many people with disabilities believe that visible disability, much like race, cannot be played. So if a wheelchair user can't play Beyonce, then Beyonce can't play a wheelchair user. People with disabilities... Thanks. I know she can do anything, just not that. (laughs) Um, People with disabilities are 20% of the population, but we're only 2% of the images that you see in media and television. And of those 2%, 95% are played by non-disabled actors. And we have no way of knowing how many people with invisible disabilities grace our screen. Because the stigma is against things like mental health issues, fibromyalgia, and chronic pain, depression. The stigma is so strong that even the most famous actress is afraid to reveal her status. If you can't see it, you can't be it. We need more positive images of disability on television so that we can dispel the myths and dispel the fear. One of the great treats of the conference this year was that Patty came with me. You know, Patty Hall, our beloved producer. That's me. And what many of you may not know about Patty is she's a secret past life as a stand-up comedian. So, Patty, I know that you were extra excited about seeing Maysoon up there, and you got a chance to talk with her. I did, and it was exciting. I felt a bond with her. And um, when I told her that I used to do it and how brave she was, she had a big smile on her face. And... You know, the the conference, we talked about this. Um, it was pretty political, uh, and she's very funny, Maysoon. So I talked to her about whether laughter and joking, stand-up is a good way to um, talk about, have difficult conversations. And um, this was her response. I think it's a, one of the things I always say is that if the person across from you is laughing, chances are they're not going to kill you. Sometimes they will, but when you can get them to laugh, when you can get them to listen, when you can humanize yourself, it's a way of disarming people to hear about stuff they've never heard about. When I'm in an audience like this, sometimes I'm the first Muslim that they've ever met, and they have like a genuine fear, and I get to come out there and laugh about things that people can identify with, you know, like getting married or, you know, 
being pulled over and they're like oh she's just like me and you're using a way to reach people that heals them because laughter is healing mm-hmm. um, one more question as far as you know the stand-up world is very male dominated um, in the me too era do you have you experienced if not sexual harassment just that boys club mentality so here's what's really interesting i navigated the comedy world first of all as an ethnic minority but also a muslim girl and a disabled girl and somehow that made me part of the boys club but i was fully aware of what was happening backstage and what my position was in places and i was fully aware of what it's like to be a woman on the road who has a thousand fans come up and find 20 different ways to grope her and trying to find a way to be out there for your audience where by the time you get back to the hotel, you're like, I'm so physically sick of people touching me. We got so used to it in the business that it just became part of the job. I would always cross my arms in all pictures so people couldn't reach me. And they'd still find a way. But I think what's great about what's happening now is, first of all, there's amazing female comics out there. This is really a heyday for us. But also the generation of women coming up know not to tolerate any of it. This is Women at Work, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. You're listening to our coverage of the Pennsylvania Conference for Women. Let's close out the show with the luncheon's keynote speaker, Serena Williams, who talked with journalist Ellen McGirt. Well, I know I've been backstage for a while, and I've been hearing a lot of talk about something I'm incredibly passionate about is maternal care and maternal health. And um, everything that I went through from literally nearly not making it and having this time with my daughter to coming back on the court and being a professional tennis player is, um, quite frankly, I didn't expect to have such an amazing year. Um, To get to the finals of Wimbledon was really, for me, impossible. You know, less than a year before, I was in a hospital bed with with a child. So, um, and then to do it again at the U.S. Open, make another final back-to-back was I just couldn't have wrote a better a better year for me. So for me, it was just the beginning of playing tennis again, and it was just the beginning of, I think I played like six tournaments this year, and um, I probably wouldn't have expected to do so well so fast on the way back. I'm so glad. You know, and you, you've been candid about so many things on this journey, which has meant so much. Your, you, your struggles being a working mom, but also an elite athlete working mom, which is just sort of transfixed working mothers everywhere, which I find incredibly beautiful because for so many reasons to have a black woman, a black mother be a universal mom just seems like an extraordinary development. Well, I love that. I love that it, it passes all color barriers because we all are women, and it starts from there. I feel like a lot of issues we have to attack together as as female, and there are some issues that are specific to black and people and to me that I really, really relate to and I really connect to, and I really try to be a part of those issues as well. Um, and I love it. I feel like you know I wasn't trying to be this vessel and be this person to speak out. I've always been really authentic, and I've always been myself because I feel like, you know, that's the most important thing that we can do is be ourselves and and be honest to ourselves. Um, And that's what what it is, and it kind of all came natural. And I, I, as someone who covers race and leadership and these issues on a daily basis for three years, which has been an interesting time, I can't prove this with the data yet because we're still having this conversation now. But I'm 100% sure that your candor with your birth experience is going to save lives. I mean, you've, you've heard what the governor said. You've heard what the mayor said. you heard mothers for, works for mothers. That, that people are paying attention to this issue because you just shared what happened to you. And you were able to, in a natural way, link it to some statistics, alarming statistics, that we should have all been paying attention to. Yeah. And I just, I have to acknowledge you for that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I... I I didn't know those statistics. You know, I did some research and I was alarmed that our black mothers are not being taken care of. And and it's in this country that is, you know, it's so su- supposed to be technology advanced. Why right. are we treating our mothers like this? And I was really fortunate because I had an opportunity for my voice to be heard. I had a wonderful female doctor who listened to me and... Um, 
And it was interesting because I, after I told my story, I didn't realize I would get so much feedback. And I didn't, that's when I learned all the statistics. And I didn't realize that there were so many women that were losing their lives and not being listened to. And, you know, it, it, it's really unacceptable. Yes. I can't yes. imagine a child growing up without their mom or a mom not having that opportunity to experience the joy because something that's just unfair you know it, yeah. it's really it's it's unacceptable and I feel like if I could say help save lives I mean I think that's one of the best things that you can do I'm sure in a few years we're going to see PhD theses and all kinds of wonderful research is going to call the, the Serena effect and, and the, the babies and the mothers and the communities that were saved because you were beloved and you were you were honest so I'm, I'm prepared to cover that story when it comes out one of the quotes that comes back often when I think about you is um, your belief in pushing um, through boundaries. You talk about that a lot, whether it's in tennis or business or fashion, which we're going to talk about. And I was wondering, now that you're reflecting back at, some, at this milestone moment in your life, what have you learned about pushing through boundaries that has really worked for you? Or what have you learned that doesn't work for you and you've had to abandon? Well, it hasn't been easy, you know, me being, well, a, a black tennis player in a sport that black people typically didn't play. Right. Um, there was no manual for that, really, you know. And my sister, uh, Venus, obviously came a year before me, but she opened so many doors for me and she pushed so many boundaries. And together, it was almost as if hand in hand, we pushed a lot of boundaries. And, I, you know, I feel like, you got to push boundaries that that are difficult to push. Like you think of it as a brick wall. It's going to be hard to push it, but you got to keep going at it and you got to keep pushing it. And one day it's going to budge. And when you get that first budge, it's really exciting because you know that it is meant to be pushed. We are here in this conference for a reason to see this so many amazing women together. Um, this is pushing an incredible boundary. I've traveled the world. I've never seen anything like this. So it's, it's, it's every day just pushing those boundaries. So I want to get to fashion because there's a, you've got a booth here. Um, but first, some breaking news. You're a co-chair of the Met Gala next year. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm excited about that. I've been in fashion for a year somewhere in between winning U.S. Opens and Wimbledon's. I went to fashion school. Um, and that was fun. I, I don't, I, to this day, I don't know how I fit in the time. And I, my major was fashion and I, you know, learned the trades. So, draw, make patterns, do everything. Um, so I've, I've been doing it for a really long time, designing the clothes that I wear on the court, um, you know, just most of the designs. And, and it's just been working with all these different companies. And um, I'm really good friends with Anna Winter, and we've been you know, a Vogue a few times with the cover, just a lot of fashion, fashion. So after, she asked me this year after the Open if I wanted to be a part of the Met Ball. And I was like... She's like, you know, I'm really, I, I don't know if you, if you, if you would want to do this and, you know, uh, just let me know. And if, if not, it's okay. And I looked at my phone and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, what does that mean? She doesn't know if I don't want to do it. Of course, of course I want to co-host the med ball. Um, and I'm already thinking about what I'm wearing. Like, okay, do I need a cape for sure? You know, cause I'm a superhero. We're all superheroes. We all need capes. <laughs> so it's it's a, it's a, it's not a year away, but it's 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 in the summer of next year, so yeah, I have time. But got some time. you know, it just it's also really helpful because of all the stuff that I've been doing for years and probably yeah. over ten years in fashion. Um, it's just finally getting recognized, you know, outside of my other career that kind of overshadows it, yep. but for good reason. Yep. Um, it's it's starting to get recognized as well. So, and you have your own line now, Serena. What is it about having your own line that you couldn't have with all of your other affiliations, like with Nike, for example? Yeah, it's, um, it's great. So we have the Serena here, and we, we're fortunate enough to have a booth here as well. Um, it's What Is Your S. I actually made this sweater specifically for this because women, we need to be seen and we need to be heard more often. And we were like, you know what, what a... What a better way to put it out than at the women's conference here. So um, it is 
it's just, it really means a lot to me. So um, it's an e-commerce site, so we have that here. And it's fun. I, I'm able to do a lot of stuff. And uh, Nike ties in with um, just being really supportive. And, you know, they've been really supportive with me. You're also becoming a powerhouse in business circles and tech circles. The best example I know about is SurveyMonkey, a company I also admire. You're on the board there. I don't know if a lot of people know about that. How do you see your role in shaping an industry that has been so um, historically unwelcoming to women and people of color and other marginalized groups? Well, yet for me, and my husband lives in the San Francisco area, so I'm like, all right, there's literally no inclusion there. It's it's a male-run facility, and it's just male, 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 male. Um, And so I feel like... You know, there's so many amazing companies and there's so many amazing women and there's so many great ideas that come from women that are either being passed up or overlooked or someone else takes the idea and makes it because they're a guy and they can do it. So for me, I'm like, what can we do? How can we, you know, have an opportunity for women's voices to be heard and to be louder? Um, And again, I'm really fortunate because I do have a platform where people hear me and I do have a voice where people can actually hear me. So I can speak for you guys and the things that you guys want to give me, I can speak on it and I can actually be heard and be seen. And so for me, that's really important. And through that, and obviously some other good connections that I have there, um, I was able to to get on the Survey Monkey board, and that that whole group is, has always been amazing. They've always had mm-hmm. lots of diversity on their in their group and on their board. And you know, it's a product that I used, and a product that companies use. So many companies use it, and um, we're branching out into personal, into more everyday use and strategic, as well as getting more involved in mobile. So for me, it was. Um, it was a really good opportunity to, to sit on that board. I'm also really good friends with Cheryl Sandberg right. and her husband, her, her, her husband that passed, unfortunately, Dave. And um, it presented an opportunity for his legend to live on with what he, some of the visions he had for the company. And to do that with Cheryl, who also sits on the board, was, was something that, honestly, I felt, I felt honored to do. Yeah. And um, if I can be a service to that, then that's that's kind of what I felt like, and it was it was just a great opportunity for me to do it. So I wanted to move on to your philanthropic work, and so in a minute I'm going to ask the team to roll um, a short video that I know is going to to move and inspire you. But I thought we could just tee it up with a couple of minutes on your philosophy of impact. Um, you're part of a very small group of very high-profile achievers, athletes, performers who take real risks weighing in on issues of equity and justice and race. Um, how do you choose when to weigh in and, and when to really invest? And because you're operating in, in such an um, unusual circle, do you support each other? Is there, I, I like to think that there's a league of champions somewhere that's like throwing up the bat signal and saying, somebody did this, who's going to weigh in? Yeah, it's interesting. We definitely support each other a lot. Um, you know, we always somehow get each other's numbers, and if something happens, we, we either call or we send a text, and then there's actually a very quiet group of us that meet together and get together a couple times a year to try to figure out what we can do, um, how we can make a bigger change, and how we can have our platform serve and have our voices be heard a lot more. Um, so that's been really fun to be a part of that. We just kind of launched that um, a year and a half ago or a year ago, and it's been great. And we've been making a lot of change on that. Again, it's super secret, and it's just, I mean, not secret as if I'm not, I can't tell you about it. I'm just not telling you <laughs> who's in it. Um, but it's also a great opportunity for, uh, for us to kind of um, support each other if anyone needs support, anyone needs right. counsel, and if anyone needs help. And the best part about it, we don't want to be known. We just want to do this just for the pure joy of helping and helping the world and helping each other out. Um, I, I uh, forgot the other part of your question. <laughs> well, that was that was good. I mean, there's now a secret group of super athletes that care about us who get together Not twice just a year. <laughs> And we can't know their names, but we can imagine that Colin Kaepernick and Beyonce and Princess Megan and all your friends. And <laughs> I know that's not her name. The other thing that I learned as I was preparing for this conversation with you is that, oh my God, Serena Williams can sing. I'm not going to ask you to sing. 
don't. Please don't. I we we not want everyone to, to stay. I am, we're not, oh, you would stay <laughs> and ask for more and throw roses. So, but this was for the, your breast cancer awareness video. Yes. And um, it's astonishingly good. And I know that you had plenty of time to prepare and coach. and A lot of time yes. preparing. <laughs> Tell us about. I'm sorry we didn't we, we didn't have it ready to show you, but if you will find it, it is, and you should put your headphones on and then just have add this to your playlist. That's how good it is. Thank you. You're, no, thank you. Tell us about it, please. Um, you know, I work really close with Burley. They're actually based out of Australia, and every year we try to raise awareness for breast cancer, and, and so they always come up with for me the best ideas. And they were like, you know, how do you feel about you know singing this song? And I was like, okay, but you know, I, I'm not a singer. Anyway, long story short, it's a great ad to just. It talks about you know examining and touching yourself and and making sure that you get caught up. I mean, excuse me, you get checked on because the number one way to prevent breast cancer is by just early detection. Yep. And I have so many friends, so many friends who have saved their lives literally because of early detection. And it is it is amazing what early detection can do. It can change your life. Um, so I thought it was really important to do that. And when when I first rolled when the ad first rolled out, I thought I got so many texts from women that were like, "Oh my God, I'm so glad you did that. I'm gonna go get a checkup. Oh my God, I, I'm so glad you did that." So many people texted me like, "I'm gonna get a checkup. I gotta go get a mammogram. I forgot. Thank you for that. I, it totally like, slipped my mind. Thank you." And I felt, it made me feel so good, you know, I was like, wow, this is really helping. And that's what I like to do. I like to do things that can really make a difference and that can really help people in the long run. Listening to you, it sounds like you've got, maybe you have it written down, but you definitely have a mental checklist of ways that you're making impact in the world, which is really a wonderful way to think about um, having this kind of platform and influence. Is there anything else that you're focused on that we should know about that we can help? Or is there anything that you're thinking about? There's so many things. I, <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um, but my main thing is I just want to leave an imprint just in a positive way. You know, I just feel we can all use our voice in a positive way. And um, it just, it, it really does matter. The Before us, the, the lady, she was really, she said that in, words do hurt on Instagram. You know, use your words nicely. And I thought that was really really impactful because, you know, we did grow up saying sticks and stones don't break our bones and words are never hurt, but, you know, they can be hurtful. And it's important now because we're in a different world um, with social media. It's a completely different world than it was 10 years ago or even five years ago. We have uh, so many different ways to impact people. Um, And I feel like if you just impact your way and just be positive or just, you know, just say positive, it, it one positive comment to someone can really go, it could change the course of their lives. And why not change it for the better than for the worse, you know? And I just feel like that makes a huge difference. When you add to that, the your ability to advocate for yourself, to take a strong stand, I don't know about you, maybe with a show of hands, how many people here were after the season was over, we're fully prepared to ask someone who needed it for an apology or just even have a mental list of someone who I needed an apology from. You know, just that sense of strength and I'm here and I'm accomplished and this is, this is right and this is wrong and I need to hold you to account. I mean, that, that demonstration was incredibly powerful to me. Do you know what I'm saying? It's the flip side of kindness. How I read it because, you know, having followed you, I'm not going to allow you to not be kind to me, which is actually an act of kindness. Thank you. (laughs) Um, You know, I just, I've always stood up for myself and I will always stand up for myself and for my daughter and for my family. Like, you know, I'll never, never not stand up for me. So we we only have a few minutes left. I thought we could move into sort of the advice from our new best friend section of the conversation. Um, For someone here who may be um, struggling to be successful, they're earlier in their journey, and they don't have access to someone who can help them, 
how do you how do you advise people pushing through to the next best version of themselves? Well, I think it's important to never stop working hard. And there are moments where I can be on the tennis court or I'm, you know, doing some design. I'm thinking, this is never going to work or I feel like I'm going to lose today. And that's not the right attitude. Right. You know? So I have, to, I have to check myself as Serena Williams. I have to be like, you can do this. You, you have to believe in yourself. You really have to be your best cheerleader. And not every day you're going to you know, be your best cheerleader and you're going to feel great about yourself. And that's normal. I think it's really important to realize that that's normal, (laughs) you know? So it's always keeping positive though, and having a a look at the bigger picture of things and understanding that for the greater part of it, you know, believe in yourself, do what do you work hard, nothing, there's no way around hard work. Um, right. There's literally no way around it. So um, that that definitely, if you're you have a goal that you want to reach, you have to write it down and really, really work towards it every day. They say you have to eat, sleep, dream it, and become it. And in a way, it's it's kind of true. So, and the, the theme of the conference is um, women inspiring each other, be seen and be heard. What is what are better ways that you have discovered that we can be allies to each other? Or, or allies to people who are just different, having a different experience from us, who are just different from us. Allyship seems to be the word of, I know this is the year of the woman, but allyship seems to be the, the word of the year as well. Yeah, well, it starts like we are here. We're all here. We're all supporting each other. And we got to go home and continue to do the same thing. Um, continue to support each other, whether it's socially, whether it's, you know, walking by and just seeing someone and giving them a compliment. That's something I always worked on doing. And I'm like, okay, you know, I just try to make people feel good about themselves, man or woman. I just sometimes, it could just make your day. And I want to do that. I want to make people's day. So um, that's something I personally strive to do. So when we leave this conference today, we can go out and, and just figure that out and just Again, just if you make someone else's day better, then we are coming together as a community and we are taking a giant leap forward and a giant leap ahead. And also, I think it's really important to support your fellow woman because I feel like, and I've said this a million times, the success of another woman should be the inspiration to the next. So it, you, it just doesn't go better than that. That was Serena Williams, of course, speaking at the annual Pennsylvania Conference for Women. That's all we've got time for, but please go to the website and check out more highlights from the event. The website address is www.paconferenceforwomen.org. Thank you all so much for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132 and at Laura Zarrow. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 